Uh, loving Father, we indeed pray that you would uh, bind us uh, together uh, in the love that comes from you, in the love that comes down from heaven, in the love uh, that you've demonstrated to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we pray for your blessing this morning as we open up your word, uh, humble us, uh, teach us, uh, grow us to be more and more like your Son. And we ask all of this in his precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, you might like to turn to Matthew 18. That would be uh, a big help this morning. And I've provided an outline uh, for you that you should have received on the way in this morning. Matthew chapter 18. This is uh, talk number five uh, in our series uh, called Unpacking Forgiveness. And uh, I've said before, if uh, you, you can catch up online and, and their talks to be heard as part of a whole, not independently uh, on each, of each other, not in isolation. And as I've prepared these talks, I've realised there's just so much to say on this important topic that you can't cover all there is uh, in one talk. Uh, so if you have questions, um, many people have had questions uh, before Christmas when we looked at this. Uh, keep coming to me with questions. They're more than welcome. Uh, but you might be wondering, well, where on earth next? We've done four talks. This is talk number five. Where to next? Well, you've heard the phrase, choose your battles. We've all heard that, haven't we? Or... Wisdom might ask, is this a hill you want to die on? But when is a thing a thing? On the one hand, if you decide to make a thing a thing, the Bible encourages us to keep short accounts. Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. That's an exercise in short accounts, isn't it? Or as Matthew, uh, Larry just read for us from Matthew 5, Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. God's people are to be reconciled and they are to be at peace. As much as possible, it's an urgent priority. But then on the other hand, Proverbs 19, we heard Kara read this out for us. Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook an offence. Well, Matthew 5.39 Do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Who's done that lately? I mean, what is a pastor to do? Do I tap my watch and tell people to hurry up and sort it out because, you know, the sun's going down? Get it done. Is that what I do? Or do I ask people 
in their conflict, well, did you turn the other cheek if you've been slapped in the face twice or only once? I mean, when? When is a thing a thing? Well, maybe Matthew 18 will help us. Remember to the question when we were first here, uh, we looked at the question, verse 1, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, Jesus calls a little child to him then and he puts the child among them and he basically says about the child, behold greatness. This is what you need to become. The way up is down. I don't know if you remember that. But look at verses 4 and 5 of our passage. Jesus concludes, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Remember, this child, the child, is an object lesson in a bigger truth. To be sure, the phrase little child, he's not talking about little children necessarily. He's talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, this is how we're to relate to one another. With humility, dependence on God, being teachable, seeking a low status, not a high one, as followers of Jesus. And so as we welcome one such child, as we welcome a brother or sister, as we shook each other's hand, we welcome who? We welcome Christ himself, don't we? That's incredibly profound. We welcome Christ himself as we welcome one another. Those three words in verse 5, did you see them? In my name. Very powerful words. Because they speak of the unity we share in Christ. Unity that's sometimes expressed as a bride or a body or vine branches. We belong to him and we belong to each other. And so remember again, look around and see we are all spiritually connected. Which is not a cheap or flippant thing. It is the very basis of our relationship together as people in Christ. Here is one aspect of forgiveness that cannot be understated. Here is Jesus in the middle of things and if Jesus is in the middle of things, isn't that a good reason to keep short accounts? To treasure this unity in Christ, remembering that he is present, he is here, he is among us, he is with us. So on the matter of forgiveness, to refuse a brother or sister is to refuse... Christ, good. And so it follows then that to reject the church family, passively or actively, is to reject, yeah, Christ. But there is a flip side to that. See, for us, if we were an unwelcoming church, that would be to forget whose we are. So as we think about our battles, as we choose them, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, best not to have them. But we must hold verses 4 and 5 before us 
as we relate to each other. Now, again, this is super important. Because on this topic of conflict, it reminds us that whatever our thing, it reminds us it's never all about you. It's not all about you. And it's not all about me. It's about Jesus. And because it's about Jesus, what does Jesus say? Did you see verse 7? Woe, woe to anyone who comes between him and his children, basically. You do not get between Jesus and his people. So verse 5, whoever welcomes one such child in my name, there it is, welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little little ones, and it's qualified, those who believe in me to stumble, well, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. If your foot or your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. The word translated stumble, it's a Greek word from which we get the English word scandal. That changes the tone of it a little bit, I think. Scandal or stumble, it gets a run six times in this passage. And the danger is someone falling or tripping up in a spiritual sense. Or more particularly, Jesus warns against anything that might cause another person to walk away from faith in him. From trusting him. And so verse 7, one big perpetrator, of course, is the world. Woe, says Jesus. Flick on the TV. There is the world instilling its values on the world. And sadly, on Christ's church. Newspapers, social media, it's everywhere. Even I remember a day when journalists used to just report the news. And now they tell you what to think. And if you disagree with them, well, you're a bigot. And you can be sure that you'll be shredded. In fact, it seems if you want to avoid conflict or scandal with the world, well, you just need to become more like the world. And so this woe of Jesus is a condemnation on the world for its part in seducing his children, those who believe in him, remember, away from him and his kingdom and away from his values. Jesus says, woe. How bad it would be if his church actively participated in such seduction. Sadly, uh, there are parts of the Anglican Communion that are guilty of this very thing. 
entertaining values and practices that are not biblical, but decidedly worldly. And we have General Synod this year, 2020, and that should be, it must be, a massive point of prayer for us. I mean, as a pastor, would you expect me, your pastor, to pastor according to the world's values or Christ's values? And if it's the latter, which I hope it is, do we understand how countercultural that is? Do we understand that even in the church, there will be people who balk or agitate or protest against that? But see that it's the difference between the world and its darkness and Christ who is the pure light, pure, radiant, true light. But it also begs a question, not just for your pastor, but it begs a question for us, for you personally. See, in your last conflict, did you shine the light of Christ brightly? Did Jesus get a look in? Because we're Christians, remember. You're a Christian, remember. Or or were you decidedly worldly? Did you encourage or stimulate the scandal and give it more and more oxygen? Did you do that? Did you despise your brother or your sister in Christ? Verse 10. Jesus warns us not to do that. How is that a good witness? Do others stumble? Are they scandalised on account of you? Have you read Matthew 18? Have you seen what is at stake? Verse 6. Better to have a millstone fastened around your neck and thrown to the depths of the sea. That would be better. Or verse 9, Jesus talks about tearing out an eye. Or verse 8, cut off a hand. All of those things are better options than being part of a scandal that causes others to stumble. Of course, Jesus didn't intend that we literally maim ourselves. It's not a license for self-harm. But he did mean that rather than cause another to stumble... In their faith in Jesus, we should take radical and decisive action. Otherwise, verse 9, hell awaits. Uh, Jesus is not saying that our ability to resolve conflict is what saves us either. But clearly, if we love Jesus, the last thing we do is steer someone else away. Surely the possibility of causing little ones or people in the church to stumble is a motivation to sort stuff out. It should have us think twice before we pull the trigger and start firing shots, before we make a mountain out of a molehill. So here is the normative pattern of life. Good that we remember that. This is a normative thing. Wherever possible. First base is that we relate to each other as being in Christ. 
And yeah, we should keep short accounts. We should forgive much because we've been forgiven much. And what we should never do is create unnecessary, monumental scandals, the kind that will cause others to stumble or even fall or walk away from Jesus. I think that's pretty clear from Matthew 18. But what if, even before the scandal, and even before the short accounts, and even before the conflict blossoms, even before we pull the trigger, what if there's another possibility? Wouldn't that be interesting? See, let me, I'll let you in on something with my family. Do you belong to a family that likes to sing, Let it go, let it go. Did they sing that to you? Some grandparents are nodding. If you couldn't detect what that song was because of my terrible singing, Let It Go, Let It Go from Frozen. Have you heard that? And sometimes my family sing it to me. Let it go. And what they're trying to tell me is just get over it, Dad. The irony is that the actual song, when she sings Let It Go, she's actually saying let it fly, let it fly, or let it out. Just go with whatever you're doing. Uh, so it's actually the opposite of the meaning, which I take great delight in reminding them of when they sing Let It Go to me. It is annoying when they sing Let It Go, and I know what their intention is, but it's not entirely unhelpful when you're told just to let it go. See, are there times when we should just pass something over, build a bridge, get over it, as an exercise in love, and forbearance. Are there times for that? And the answer, of course, is yes. Absolutely. Is it biblical? Yes. Proverbs 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offence. It's a good thing. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8? This is beautiful. Above all, Love each other deeply because love covers over a Cynthia Blackwell, what a legend. A multitude of sins. Verbatim. Notice these verses aren't negative. It's not like we're to be doormats. No, these verses are very positive. They're about love and patience and ultimately bring on into yourself it's to your glory which brings us to this important truth on the topic of forgiveness and conflict you don't need to go there in the first place sometimes you don't need to formally resolve every conflict that takes place some offences need to be dropped and we need to remember this I need to remember it. You need to remember it. It's a bit like a cricket analogy. Can I have a cricket analogy? I think the men nearly outdo it. Oh, maybe they don't. Yeah, I'm going with the cricket analogy. You don't have to combat every single ball that gets tossed up in test cricket. In test cricket, good batters know which balls to leave alone. They don't have to hit every ball. Some balls are hard to face and so we need to take care. But isn't it good to know that it is actually a godly and wise 
thing when we just let it go through to the keeper. If it's right and if you're able to do that. And can I say this is a good tonic for society that is increasingly precious, entitled and so easily offended. The way media feeds outrage, public outrage, is very troubling and vexing to me. But this is a good tonic for those of us who hold on too tight and find it hard to let things go. Is that you? People who spend their life consumed by negative, ruminating thoughts. But it's not our first instinct, is it? No, it's not our first instinct. And our first instinct might be payback. But isn't it encouraging when we see this in action, when people are gracious and mature and patient and understanding? It can be extraordinary when we see that. But some people, not only do they just let it go, some, well, they'll even turn the other cheek of all things. Or they'll hand over a tunic or a coat. Or they'll walk that extra mile. And of course, those alternatives are familiar to us because we know Jesus offers them as alternatives to strife, to scandal, to opposition from evil people, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. Give him your coat as well. Walk the extra mile. It's not eye for eye, payback and revenge. It's surprisingly out of the box, isn't it? To a world that seems so full of angst and so easily triggered, and too ready for a spat. Christians can offer something surprising and kind and generous and completely extraordinary. Proverbs 17 verse 14 warns, The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the barrel breaks out, before the quarrel breaks out. Starting a quarrel is like playing with explosives at the base of Copeton Dam when it's full. And if you're not careful, you'll end up blowing up the dam and all the king's horses and all the king's men won't be able to put the thing together again. Starting a quarrel is like flinging a glass of water across a room. Once you've done it, you cannot reverse the process. It's like lighting a fire. And we know... How destructive that is, yet we all fall for it too readily. And the encouragement is, you don't have to. You don't have to. Proverbs twelve sixteen: the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. I want to write that on my fridge. The vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. It is an honour for man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarrelling, Proverbs 20, verse 3. 
You see the difference between the wise and the foolish? On the other side of his sermon notes that I gave you is a list of practical questions to work through uh, before making a thing a thing. And I think question one is good and I think question five is excellent. I think they're all good. But question five is very important. Seek the counsel of others. But you might still be asking, why should I cover an offence over? Why should I? And it's for all the reasons above. But most especially it's because this is what God does for us. See, before God, when is a thing a thing? When is a thing a thing? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. Abounding in love, yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And so we know he sends his only begotten son to live and die on a cross, his blood shed for all our offences, all of our sin. He bears our punishment on his shoulders so that we need never have to. So that we can have peace with him. And as we enjoy that peace that we have with God through faith in Jesus. It's a peace that we go out and we share with others. All to his praise and glory. Amen.